Thank you. I would like to uh, add my personal welcome. Thank you, Annika, for welcoming. Thank you for coming and just worshiping with us today. What a spectacular day. And I'd also like to uh, also reiterate those two announcements about the congregational meeting next Sunday. Um, that's open to anybody. Only the members can vote, but you're all welcome to come and ask questions and kind of be part of that experience. And that's where we get a chance to just talk to you and tell you what we're doing and what's going on. So I'd like to encourage you to come out for that. We'll do our best not to make it too boring. Um, so you have a sense of what God's doing here at the church. And Tuesday night, open forum, so you can come to the elders meeting and ask any questions that you have. I'd like to invite you to that as well. If you haven't gotten a copy of the ministry plan, you can contact the church office and they can get you one. Uh, don't contact me, I'm not sure how to give it to you. <laughs> but there will be people there that can. Today we're looking in John 19, and uh, it's, the text is actually in your bulletin, in the white pages. It's only three verses. You get a sense you'll get a sense into how I think based on these three verses. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Now, when I read a question like this or a little verse like this, I just can't help but ask the question, what on earth was God thinking? Why is this come right after the uh, soldiers casting lots for Jesus' garments and right before him saying, it is finished and dying? Why are these verses there? God must have had some thoughts. John must have been thinking about something to stick these kind of odd little verses right in the middle of that. The last thing Jesus does, he says this to his mother. But he doesn't call her mother, he calls his woman. We've heard that before. We'll come back to that in just a moment. So as we, uh, as we begin to answer that question, here's a question I have for you. What do you think it was like for Mary standing there, watching her son? What was it like for her? She had heard all the birth announcements from the angels, and she was aware of the prophecies, and she... She knew that her son was the Messiah, and now he's hanging on the cross. What was she thinking? What's her perspective? Listen to some questions she might have asked. What was it like watching him pray? How did he respond when he saw other kids giggling during the service at the synagogue? When he saw a rainbow, did he ever mention a flood? Did you ever feel awkward teaching him how he created the world? When he saw a lamb being led to the slaughter, did he act differently? Did you ever see him with a distant look on his face as if he were listening to someone you couldn't hear? How did Jesus act at funerals? Did the thought ever occur to you that the God to whom you were praying was asleep under your own roof? Did you ever try to count the stars with him and succeed? Did he ever come home with a black eye? How did he act when he got his first haircut? Did he have any friends by the name of Judas? 
Did he do well in school? Did you ever scold him? Did he ever have to ask a question about scripture? What do you think he thought when he saw a prostitute offering to the highest bidder the body he made? Did he ever get angry when someone was dishonest? Did you ever catch him pensively looking at the flesh on his own arm while holding a clod of dirt? (laughs) Did he ever wake up afraid? Who was his best friend? When someone referred to Satan, how did he act? Did you ever accidentally call him father? What did he and his cousin John talk about as kids? Did his other brothers and sisters understand what was happening? And did you ever think, that's God eating my soup? This summer at the amphitheater, we're focusing on the theme of identity theft. It's my contention that um, culture has stolen the identity of Jesus. Mostly what I see presented about Jesus, I don't agree with. I think they're wrong. I don't think they're accurate. I don't think they really grasp who Jesus really is. So we've been exploring from week to week different uh, snapshots out of John. Who is Jesus? And so we're going to do that again today. Except now we're sitting on the cross. So let's talk about the scene just a little bit. Let's describe it. You notice that uh, this passage says that there's several women there. There's at least three, probably four. It's kind of hard to tell if it was actually four, but there's some women there. That's the most important thing. And the other thing is that uh, the beloved disciple, who we believe, I believe is John, who wrote the Gospel of John, is standing there. Where are the rest of the disciples? In fact, where's the rest of the men? This presents one of the first ironies in this whole story because the men are uh, not there. They're most likely in the temple. This is just before Jesus died. The other Gospels tell us It's approximately 3 p.m. when he died. This is um, heading into Passover. And so the rest of the the men in the nation are in the temple. They're sacrificing the uh, Passover lambs along with the high priest. That's part of the ritual. They'd go to the temple and they'd sacrifice the the lamb, not the priest. They'd sacrifice the lambs, slit the throat of the lamb. and, uh, And remember, the Passover supper where God passed over in Exodus the nation of Israel because they put the blood on the doorpost, passed over their children, the firstborn. You may remember the story from Egypt. So they're sacrificing and they're worshiping this Passover. And it's one of the ironies because here the men are inside the temple sacrificing the Passover lambs while the true Passover lamb is just about to die. Hanging on a cross out on the lonely lonely hillside, pretty much unobserved by all but a few. But the women are there. It's pretty intriguing. In the first century world, the people that were executed on a cross, it was very common for them to um, kind of give their last will and testament, if you will, from up on the cross. So they could take care of final business matters because they had witnesses right there. Didn't have to have an attorney or a notary or any of those. You just had people standing there. You say, this is what I want to have happen. 
And so part of what's happening here is Jesus is fulfilling his duty as the oldest son. That's part of it. So if you were to be within moments of dying, what would you be doing? What would you be thinking about? What would cross your mind? We learn an awful lot about Jesus by these two little, these three little verses. In fact, I'm going to argue in just a minute that they're perhaps some of the most significant verses in John. But at a very human level, we see a son looking at a mother and taking care of her. He's doing what he's supposed to do. Now, it's also very interesting that he doesn't, he doesn't say to his mother that my brothers will take care of you which would have been appropriate within culture. And it could very well be because at this point, uh, we have no evidence that they had believed in Jesus. The last thing we hear about his brothers is that they didn't believe in John 7. So this may be reflective of the fact that he wants his mother taken care of. She's very aware of who he is. Joseph is probably out of the picture. He's never around uh, after Jesus' twelfth. when Jesus talks about Jesus being 12 years old. So the oldest son has a responsibility to care for his mother, and that's what he's doing. And he's saying, here's, here's your son. And your son, here's your mother. But he calls her woman. Now, we're not, we've heard that before, right? If you go all the way back to John chapter 2, and the wedding of Cana, when she comes to him, the, wedding, the wine had all run out. Some of you are familiar with the story. Some of you that were here may remember that time we talked about that. And so he, she comes to him and she says, they ran out of wine. This is a big deal in the first century at a wedding, a, a cultural faux pas. You don't run out of wine. That's just something you don't do. And they had, he, they had run out of wine. So she goes to Jesus and says, they ran out of wine. The implication is, I know who you are. You can take care of this. It's not like you're going to run down to the store and buy you know, wine for a big party. He doesn't have that kind of money. So there's a strong implication. I know who you are. You could take care of this embarrassing situation. So he responds by saying, woman, what is that between you and me? Now, that sounds kind of harsh in our culture because we don't usually call our mothers woman. (laughs) But that actually wasn't that embarrassing. That wasn't that harsh in that world. And by calling her woman, I think what he's doing there is he is transferring the relationship from a son to a mother to a woman to a savior. I think that's what's happening. And so he didn't ask her a rude question. He's asking her, what is, what is it you're saying? What are you trying to do here? And so what does she say? She turns to the servants and says, do whatever he says. She's the first person in John to express faith. He knows what to do. You can trust him. And you know the rest of the story He turns the water into wine, displays his glory, and moves on from there and enters into his life. So now we're at the other end. So if this is at the beginning of his life, the wedding of Cana, we're now at the end of his life. He's on the cross. And we have the same phrase, woman, behold your son. He's just making it very clear. I'm going to fulfill my responsibilities. However, I am God. So he's taking care of his mother, and he's fulfilling the responsibilities that come with that. As, a, as the eldest son, he's fulfilling his responsibilities. But there's something else happening underneath all of this 
that's just fascinating to me. There's this whole theological movement of, that's occurring in these three verses where he's closing up loose ends. He's tying things together in John. And he's, he's starting something brand new. He's ending something and he's starting something at the same time. So here he is on the cross, just moments away from dying. And John records this as his last act, basically, before he dies. And so he, when he looks at his mother and he looks at the, the one disciple that shows up. By the way, where are the rest of the disciples? They took off. John 16. He said, you're all going to scatter. Well, we know where Peter went, right? He's the one that betrayed him. Peter just, he took off. In fact, you're going to come back and see Peter after this. Broken man. Very humbled. He's the one that betrayed his Messiah. How would you like to be the one known for all of eternity as the one who betrayed Jesus? You and Judas. They both did, didn't they? So they're gone. They're scattered. And Jesus predicted that that would happen. So these disciples, they just scatter to the wind. They don't even want to show up because they're going to be associated with him. And that's what happens. From then on, all the way through the book of Acts, people kept remembering, weren't you with this Jesus guy? Weren't you with this Messiah? And so they're gone. But the beloved disciple, John, shows up. So you have the scene with John, and you have the women, and you have Jesus. All right, now, when you look at it from a theological perspective, it looks very different. We have the God of the universe, the one true living God. John chapter 1 tells us, no one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten, that's Jesus, he reveals him. So you have God sitting on his throne by hanging on the cross. It is his throne. That's where he did all those definitive acts to bring about our salvation. It's where forgiveness of sin occurred. That's where the shedding of blood, when he celebrated communion in just a little while, the breaking of his body, the shedding of his blood, the institution of the new covenant, the forgiveness of sins, all these things occur right here, hanging on the cross. He's in the throne room. And he looks down and he says to her, behold your son. So at one level, he's taking care of his mother. But at an entirely different level, he's starting something brand new that the world hasn't seen. John chapter 1, verse 11 says, he came unto his own and his own did not receive him. He talked about he came to the nation and they, they rejected him. Now, here's what's amazing. That little phrase, he came unto his own. That little phrase is the exact same phrase when he says here, from that time on, this disciple took her into his home. This disciple took Mary into his own. We have the beginning, the very first example of this new community of which you all participate. Jesus had been predicting this all the way through. I want to give you some examples. In John chapter 10, verse 16, he says, um, I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. There's this gathering idea. I have people to go after. In chapter 11, He says, 
Um, Then one of them named, uh, verse 49, then one of them named Caiaphas, who was a high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. So the high priest is actually prophesying this. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So out of the mouth of the high priest, he's, he's quoting words about the Messiah. He just doesn't believe Jesus is the Messiah. And then in chapter 12, we have several references to this. On account of him, Lazarus, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. And there's many more references here. All the way woven throughout John is this idea that, that the Messiah is going to gather the people of God. Now, the Jewish people, they misunderstood that. They were thinking of the nation. Um, and Jesus said, I have other sheep that you don't even know about. So here he is on the cross, sitting in his throne while he's hanging there, and he does an act. He concludes John. He says, you two are together. They were the two faithful ones that showed up. They were the ones that were there. And they showed up. And so what happened in the beginning, he came into his own, and his own did not receive him. From that moment on, John took her into his own, and we have the beginning of this redeemed community. So Jesus is ending one part of his life by dying on the cross, and he's beginning another part of his life. By starting this community. I'm just looking out at all of you. We belong to this community. And it's really intriguing that he doesn't, John never uses the name of Mary, his mother. Never calls her by name. It sounds disrespectful, but it's not disrespectful. In fact, the very fact that he doesn't call her by name raises her status. Because you're wondering why. You ever think about the paradoxes in Christianity? You can't doubt if you don't believe. Think about that. How many times have I had people sitting in my office? I don't know if I believe in this gospel. I don't know if I believe Jesus. And I just chuckle. You can't doubt if you don't believe. You have to believe before you can doubt. I just think that's, I laugh because I'm really laughing at myself. When I came to know the Lord, I never will forget. For me, it was a three-year process. I had a girlfriend who had been sharing Christ with me way back in high school for three years. Been out of high school now for a year. And I remember getting down to the final day. Uh, you'll learn something else about me. Sitting there uh, in Orlando, Florida, on a beach by a lake, sitting there going, okay, God, if you're real, now think about that. <laughs> I'm having a conversation with somebody, and I'm trying to decide, if you're real, then I'm going to sell out for you. I'll believe. And if you're not real, get out of my life. Well, now I look back on it years and years later, thinking about it, and it just makes me laugh I think God just must have just been up there just chuckling. How could I have a conversation with somebody who's not real? There's counselors in this audience that could help me with that. When you come to the point where you believe in the risen Lord Jesus, it is normal to doubt. That's part of life. Because we can't see him yet as he is. We will. But right now we can't. Of course we doubt. 
But the only reason you can doubt is because you believed in the first place. So I always smile when people doubt. Yes, they're human. Think of the paradoxes. And so here he is, dying on the cross, and his, one of his final, his final act is to start this new community. He puts his mother together with a beloved disciple. They're the two faithful ones. Now, it's interesting because they also play a very predominant role in John. Both of them are the ones who reveal Jesus. His mother reveals him at the wedding of Cana when she says to the servants and the disciples, do whatever he tells you. That's when Jesus had the opportunity to uh, reveal his glory for the first time by turning the water into wine. John reveals Jesus by writing the book. He wrote the gospel to reveal the Messiah to us. So the two people who played very strategic roles in this book, he brings them together. Now, if you look over in Acts, you find something very, very interesting. Just a few short 50 days later, the apostles were up in the upper room and they're praying. And he names all the apostles in Acts 1, 13 and 14. When he gets to 14, he says, they all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus. There she is. She reappears in this new, this new community. And then the Holy Spirit comes through and whoosh, changes all of world history at Pentecost. It's fabulous. It's just 50 days after Jesus has died. And she's there. So Mary appears again. Last week we heard from Don Payne from Denver Seminary. He talked about the washing the uh, disciples' feet, the apostles' feet in John 13. Listen to what Jesus said. It was before the Passover. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the very end. This is what we learn about Jesus at this final little passage here. At the very end, he loved his own to the very last action, dying. The very last thing he does is takes care of his mother. He fulfills his duties in that culture, but then he starts this new community. And he puts two of the faithful people together, and that's the beginning of the new community. He loved his own to the end. That's what we learn about Jesus in the middle of this. I think it's a fascinating passage. I think it's one of the most intriguing and important passages in John just because it shows the final act of Jesus and what does he do. I know that many of you um, struggle. I know that because I pray with you down here. We're going to be praying again in just a few moments. I know that I pray with you. I, I hear you in my office talking about things. I know there's a lot of brokenness out there. I've been there. I've experienced a lot of the brokenness you share with me. I've experienced that. I know that dark world. I know what it's like to... Uh, to wonder where the Lord is. I've used the analogy with my children when they've grown up that serving the Lord is like dancing. Try to use a dance metaphor. For those of you that dance, this will make sense. For the rest of you, you'll just have to imagine it. Some days you walk out on the dance floor and you're with the Lord and it's just perfect. You wonder how in the world you could ever doubt. You're both, I mean, you're, you're dancing to the same music, the same rhythm, and you, you, you just feel the energy and you're swaying together. Other days you walk out on the dance floor and you wonder if you're playing, dancing to the same tune. You're knocking knees. You're going one way. He's going the other way. 
you're at odds with him, doesn't make sense, it's uncomfortable. Some days you walk out on the dance floor and he's not even there. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Hebrews says Jesus is tempted in every way just as we are, yet without sin. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Apparently, Jesus had at least one instant time in his life when he couldn't experience or see the Father. That's part of the Christian life, folks. I'm just telling you, that's part of it. The reality is he is there. He's just hiding back in the shadows. Because sometimes it is in your best interest to figure out whether or not you really love him. Sometimes it's in your best interest to come to the conclusion, I really believe. And therefore, it's in, because it's in your best interest, I think he just steps out of the picture for a moment. He doesn't leave. You know what I'm talking about? He disappears. When my first wife died, I was holding her hands. Listen to the heart monitor start to come down. Her heart was racing very, very high. She was in intensive care, and her heart started to come down. It kind of came into the normal range. And I said to the nurse in intensive care, I said, huh, look, her heart rate's coming down to the normal range. And she walks up and puts her arm around me. She says, no, no, you need to say goodbye. And I watched it keep going all the way down to zero. And I had the privilege of saying goodbye, escorting my wife into the arms of Jesus. We're going to have words about that one day because I got the short end of the stick. She left me with a one and three-year-old while she went to glory. But you know what happened? You know the first thing I thought of when the heart stopped, when her heart stopped? I had, we had talked about this before she died. And I said, I don't know what it's like to lose somebody. I don't know what it's like to die, but I have a feeling it'll be like this. I'm going to be sitting there next to you. You won't be alone. And then uh, you'll be sleeping. You, she was in a coma. And uh, the doctors had done that. And um, I think what will happen is uh, Jesus would just walk up and say, hey, it's time to go. And you'll go, okay. And, and they get up and leave. And you guys will leave. And, 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 and I'll see that. <laughs> I'll experience it. And that's what happened. I just visualized her just sitting up and walking away. And you know the first thought I had when I'm holding her hands? <laughs> I'm crying, tears, all the things that go with losing someone that you love deeply. My first thought, I closed my eyes and I just chuckled to myself and I said, huh, the Lord just took away the most important person to me and I still love him. My faith is real. That's how I knew. It was real. So sometimes when you walk out on that dance floor and God's not there, you experience that in dark times of life. I think all it means is he's just sitting in the shadows letting you come to some conclusions. What do you really believe? So if you're in that time of brokenness, take heart. Take heart. It'll produce something. I've had several of you in my office, and uh, any others that want to come, my office is open. I love to spend time. I love to spend time with you praying, talking about things. We're going to enter into a time of community worship here in just a moment. And we've designed this on purpose to be an experience. We want you to experience what it means to be together in community. We have a time of offering. We have a time of communion. Uh, Ushers, go ahead and 
Start making your way down. I know the band's coming here as well. They're going to play while we're celebrating together. And um, they're going to take an offering. And we've designed this on purpose to be an experience. You know, God created you to be generous. You ever thought about that? It's certainly a command. But forget about the command piece of it. The only reason that the commands are there is because you don't really know what it means. The, the lame man, when he healed the lame man, you know, he didn't walk away. He grabbed him by the hand and said, stand up. Stand up and walk. Well, the man didn't know he could walk. And that's how I look at the commands of the New Testament. They're telling us something about ourselves that we don't necessarily know. And generosity is one of those things. And I just would like to say, on behalf of the staff and the elders in our church, we're so grateful for your generosity. Uh, you visitors out there, I know you don't know a lot about our church. We're actually pretty small. We have 200, 250 members. But we have 3,500 people come through our doors every year. And actually, it's your giving that it makes it possible for us to do the things that we do, like the worship at the amphitheater and the expenses of doing this. You make it possible. And we are so grateful for that. So I'd like to invite you to... Uh, to help us be generous with us if God puts that on your heart. So the elders are passing the basket. Let's spend a little bit of time in worship. And while we're doing this, think about communion. I have a couple of words for you in just a moment about communion because we are going to celebrate Jesus' death, the very thing we're talking about.